For those of you who knew, I was away for a few days. Been in Salina. I was at uh, some denominational meetings for the Midwest Conference and the Ministerial Association. I'll, uh, I'll share more of that in my, my email this week in terms of some of the, uh, the specifics just by way of reporting to you as church family. But, but I am reminded always when I am at a, a gathering like that of what a, what a gift it is to us as a congregation to be a part of what I, what I call a healthy denomination. Uh, all denominations are imperfect because they're filled with imperfect people. Um, some are healthy, imperfect denominations. Others, I think, are unhealthy, and I'm grateful for what I see is just real evidence of, of health in the life of our denomination. For the, the support, for the encouragement, for the accountability uh, that there is for us as a, uh, as a congregation uh, within that structure, it is a blessing. Friday night, we, uh, we had communion together, and I was, I, I was struck with one of those holy moments where all of a sudden, and, and for me, oftentimes the holy moment comes when it's something that is so familiar. Communion is very familiar. I'm sure most of you would, would agree with that. And, and as, I, as I watched folks gather in lines, break the bread and dip it in the cup, I was just overcome with this sense of, wow, I am a part of something that is huge, that has been going on for centuries and centuries and centuries. God's people joining together, there by the grace of God revealed to us in Christ Jesus, and a part of something that just sweeps us into the history that, that God is writing in this world. It, I, I just can't explain it. It was, it was such a wow moment. I was reminded of a, of a book. It's uh, 25 years old now. Some of you perhaps have heard the name of the book, Resident Aliens, written by Stanley Auerwes and, and William Willimon, both professors at Duke University. But I think to this day, 25 years later even, it is, it is still a, a, a prophetic vision of the church's role in society. They claim that rather than trying to reform the culture in which the church finds itself, they insist that the church should focus instead upon developing Christian life and community that the people of God should live their lives so that they model the love of Christ in all that they do. Rather than convince others to change their ethics, they should model a new set of ethics that are grounded in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. They believe that God's people ought to see themselves as resident Aliens in a foreign land. It is their conviction that only when the church lives out its scandalously Jesus-centered tradition will it truly be the body of Christ and transform the world. And to that I say, 
Amen. So the sermon title this morning is taken from their book. It is not original with me. But the truth is the idea of the church living out the scandalous Jesus-centered tradition is, is not original with them, and they would agree it has been going on in a lot of places, again, for centuries and centuries. Because the life of Jesus, if we are really following after him, is indeed scandalous to the culture in which we find ourselves. To be a follower of Jesus always begins with death to self. And then it requires that in the power of God's Spirit who comes to indwell us, we begin to live out the values of the kingdom with its upside-down economy. The weak being strong. The first being last. Entry into the life of the kingdom coming through childlike faith. For those who claim residence in that kingdom, their life's passion and their focus is living day to day in the power of the Spirit of God as Jesus would live to the glory of the Father. And I know I have, I have shared before, I, I consciously try to avoid the word Christian these days when people ask me questions about who I am, what I do, about my faith and, and it's not that I don't love the word, I, I do love the word. But in our culture, when you say the word Christian, it comes with an enormous amount of baggage. And a lot of that has nothing to do with the kingdom of God. To many people who claim to be a Christian, they're, they're living out quite the opposite in many ways of the name. Christian simply means Christ's one or little Christ. As I say, I I cherish the word, but it's a word that has lost its meaning in our culture because, because many who claim to be Christian have a priority in life that stands against the very thing that Jesus saved us from. And that, my friends, is self. Jesus saved us from ourselves. That sin nature can be summed up as living for self in disregard to the God who made us for himself. And that is precisely what Jesus came to save us from. He paid the price for, for the sin of self-exaltation, the rejection of God. And he opened up for us a path of intimacy with God. The very thing for which we were created. And when we really understand that, and the Spirit gets a hold of our lives, they take on a whole new focus. And living for self is not even on the list of things to which we give ourselves, at least in theory. To be sure, it creeps back onto the list. Because that's what the sin nature does. It doesn't go away. But our response as God's people is to deny the call of the sin nature to live for self. That is what the Spirit empowers us to do. He empowers us to live into the salvation that Christ has brought, the sin of living 
for self has been defeated as he has freed us from the power of sin. Paul talks about the sin nature and our response. He says we need to put it to death. Shoot that sucker. Doesn't really say that, but that's kind of my spin because, we, because we've been rescued from, from self-focused living to something that is far, far greater. And when we do that, it is radical. It is scandalous living for God and living for others. That's really what it comes down to. Rescued from self so that we can live for God and live for others, giving ourselves away in other-focused living. I think the only concern that we should ever have about ourselves, and trust me, I'm not there, But in theory, I think the only concern we should ever have about ourselves is whether or not we are living fully surrendered lives, obediently following the leading of the Spirit to give ourselves away. I just don't know how you come to any other conclusion when you look at the life of Jesus and the way that he lived and the call that he clearly made of death to self. Deny ourselves. Take up the cross. Follow Jesus. So this morning, our text in Peter begins with that word, therefore. And we know that the word is there to tie what he is is going to say to what he has just said or what he has just written. Last Sunday, we, we read the words of Peter and explored some of the words as he described an amazing God and an amazing salvation. Peter, you remember, has said that God has given us new life through Jesus. We have been given a living hope. Everything else that we put our hope in is false. It is dead. We've been given a living hope, a hope that is real and true and worth having because it is grounded, Peter says, in the resurrection of Jesus and in the character of God. And even though there are plenty of trials and hardships and pain in this life, Peter's encouragement to us is to see them as opportunities to have our faith refined so that when Jesus Christ is revealed, they give even greater glory to him. Do you hear that? Even the trials aren't about us. They're about refining our faith so that he shines even greater as a result of how we respond to the hard stuff of life. And to remind us that something far greater is coming. If you've been reading in 1 Peter, and I hope you have, you know that, that he ends chap, the, uh, that, that section that we dealt with last week talking about words of great mystery. God has done this new and amazing thing through his Son. And it's something that, that the prophets, he said, had, they had an idea. And they, they were searching the times and the scriptures trying to find out when the Spirit of Christ was going to do this thing. <laughs> and he says, and I love the, the last line of, of, our, of our section last week, something that even the angels long to see. Something that even the angels long to understand. I love that image. Can't you just imagine the angels in conversation in the heavens? One of them says, 
did you hear what God is doing? And the other one says, yeah, that is unbelievable. Why, why would he do something like that? Well, only he would know, says the other one. Well, you know what a lover of those humans he is. Who can understand why he loves them so much? I mean, all they do is pretty much live for themselves. The longing that the angels have to, to, to understand the mystery of God's amazing grace. And so it is this amazing salvation that God has provided, this living hope that comes to those who believe, and the enormous wonder and mystery that surrounds what God has done and continues to do in His people that leads us up to that first word that we are going to read together, therefore. Okay? So let's stand and let's read our text from the end of 1 Peter chapter 1 this morning. Here we go. Therefore... With minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect." He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. Grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Praise be to God. Go ahead and be seated. Wow. Peter strings together five exhortations early in this reading. The language for each is imperative. That means that it's it's essential. It It is a call for obedience, it is command language, it is non-negotiable. As God's people, Peter is saying, give your full and undivided attention to these things. So, so let me say just a few things about each of these, these five exhortations, which sort of leads to a, a final one, and we'll, we'll come to that, a sixth one. First one is prepare your minds for action. Prepare your minds for action. Peter is saying that 
It is precisely because we are recipients of such an amazing salvation, we need to prepare our minds for action. We need to be people who are thoughtful about what God has done for us. Because we have been given a living hope, we need to prepare our minds for action. Because our faith is going to be refined and purified by trials and hardships and pain in this life, we must prepare our minds for action. And the words, of, of the, the, the words have the image of a person in that day who, wearing long robes, would, would gather the robe and, and tuck them up into the belt of their garment so they could be ready to move freely and quickly. Peter, I think, is saying to us as God's people, you know, God has done these things and you as his people need to remember these things and to be thoughtful of these things. You need to encourage and to remind one another of these truths and be prepared to move in terms of your thinking. It's the idea of being prepared to respond to something that comes and challenges that thinking. Here's what I mean. One of the things that Scripture is clear about, I think, is is the myth of neutrality. I've said to you before that there are two realities in Scripture that people live in. There are those who live as the children of God, and there are those who are not the children of God. If we want to go and use Paul's language... Paul takes it further and and makes it a little more challenging to us that that those who are not the children of God are enemies of God. Their thinking, their minds are hostile to God. Using his words to the Ephesians, we would say that, that those folks are still the objects of his wrath because their minds do not acknowledge who God is. They do not live into the purpose for which they were created. That's harsh stuff. Because we all know nice people who are enemies of God. You know, I think if an enemy is someone who's nasty and vile. That's not what Peter is saying. That's not what, what Paul is saying. Paul writes to the Colossians about the kingdom of darkness versus the kingdom of God's Son. So because our thinking is so key in this process that Peter is describing, how we think about it, letting our minds go there often, meditating on the truths of what God has done for us and in us, encouraging one another with those truths. We must be prepared for the powers of the kingdom of darkness to attack the ways that we think. They will challenge the ways that we think. We have been giving, we've been given an amazing salvation. The kingdom of darkness will, through circumstances and events in our lives, try to convince us that salvation is really not all that amazing. We know that trials are going to come and to refine our faith. I mean, Peter's letter, and we'll see more, is just full of facing the trials and the hardships that come as followers of Jesus. So we know in our heads, we tell ourselves, we remind one another, we seek to encourage one another in that process. The kingdom of darkness 
will come and seek to plant doubts in our minds about the goodness of God, about the love of God, about the grace of God. We have been given, Peter says, a living hope. And the kingdom of darkness will make us wonder about it and tempt us to put our hope in something else. Can you relate to this? It is the way our minds work. So Peter says, prepare your minds for action. Know and expect that these battles are coming. Think the truth and encourage one another in the truth. Take the robes of your thought life and tuck them into your belt and be ready to move away from the doubt and the temptation to move back into the truth of who God is and what he has done. Preparing our minds for action. His second exhortation is to set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when when Jesus Christ is revealed. This is a command to to live with expectation and excitement that Jesus is going to return. You you read through the New Testament writings and, and there is just that sense of the return of Jesus is imminent. When, when Jesus disappeared into heaven on that day as, as his followers stood there looking and watching him go, they didn't think it was going to be 2,000 years before he came back. They lived their lives as if he was coming back much sooner. Could be a lot longer yet. And so, are we living with a sense of Anticipation expectation, excitement that Jesus is going to return? Or can I say it this way? Are we living with a sense of excitement about meeting Jesus? Whether I'm on planet Earth when he returns, or whether I've died before then, either way, I'm meeting Jesus. Are you excited about that? Boy, your faces need to be informed by what you're thinking. Holy cow! On the list of things in our lives that bring excitement, let's be honest. (laughs) We're not going to raise our hands. But what number is seeing Jesus in terms of the excitement list? Is, Is it even on our lists? I'll be honest with you. I go for days, weeks, months. There have been years that I don't think about the coming of Jesus. You know, I can remember as a teenager, I prayed that Jesus wouldn't come before I was 16 and I could get my driver's license. (laughs) It did. He was gracious. Whoop-dee-doo, I got my driver's license. You know, you're 16, that's the world. Oh, man, I I can remember being engaged to Sharice and anticipating our wedding, praying that he wouldn't come before our wedding, specifically that he wouldn't come before our wedding night. (laughs) We're being honest here, right? I'm among friends. So much of our thinking, okay, I'll say my thinking, you put the shoe on if it fits, relates to experiences in this life, many of, of which are just, are, are precious and blessed and wonderful, 
But somehow, somehow we have got to get to that place where we have surrendered even those longings and those desires for the good and precious and wonderful blessings of God. We surrender those in comparison to how awesome it's going to be to be with Jesus, our living hope. Set your hope fully. He doesn't say set your hope partially. Set your hope from time to time. On an every other day basis, set your hope. Set your hope fully. Put all of your hope fully, every piece of it, on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed, however that happens in your life. You know, we get these wonderful emails from Kelsey's father-in-law, Edwin. He calls them ramblings from the UK. And it's just wonderful because he's always telling us, you know, tidbits of, you know, what's going on in the lives of the kids and what they've been doing together and what the four of them do together. And, and so while Kelsey was, was here recently for a couple of weeks, we got an email from Edwin that says, okay, you've had her long enough, send her home. <laughs> and then he proceeds to tell us, but her absence has created a miracle in the, lives of our, in the life of our son. He's referring to Andrew and, and he he had called Andrew one of the days that, that Kelsey was gone and, and said, you want to go to a rugby game? Andrew's a rugby player, loves rugby. And Edwin says there was this strange pause on the end of the phone. And then Andrew said, yeah, yeah, Dad, I really would love to go to the rugby game, but, but first of all, I have to tidy up around the house because Kelsey's coming home in two days. <laughs> and Edwin says... Miracle of miracles, what Kim and I have been trying to instill into our son for 26 years, Kelsey has done in less than one year's time. (laughs) Tidying up before his wife comes home. Peter is telling us to set our hope fully on the grace that Jesus is coming And let it be a motivation to us to tidy up our lives in preparation for his appearance. Third exhortation, be self-controlled. Now, the original meaning of of the Greek word that that Peter uses there has to do with with abstaining from excessive use of of wine. It's the idea of living, living soberly. Now, if you've ever been around a drunk person, you you know that they say and do stupid things. And, and usually by virtue of their drunkenness, they call all sorts of attention to themselves. That's what Peter's driving at. Peter's saying, be self-controlled. Think appropriately about yourself. Remember that you were not deserving of this amazing grace. Remember that you didn't do anything that merited God's love toward you other than just being a creature created in his image. And yet one, again, if we go with some of the the more difficult language of Scripture, was, was a rebellious person. One who, who by nature rejected God. And so Peter's challenges to remember that God has rescued us from a life that is bent on glorifying self. Call attention to ourselves in 
in just a multitude of ways. We are to be a people who live in such a way that we call attention to God for this amazing love and salvation that we did not deserve. Be self-controlled. The fourth exhortation is obedient children do not conform to the evil desires that you had when you lived in ignorance. These are words of very stark contrast, words of, of comparison. He again is reminding them of the most amazing reality of their salvation, that God not only saved them, but he, he brought them into his family and made them his children. God has brought those of us who are followers of the Lord Jesus, who have surrendered our lives to him. He has done the same. We have been brought into his family. Peter is saying, don't live like you used to, Evil desires being the natural inclination to live for self and do what pleases self. No, don't live that way. Live for your heavenly Father. Live for the one who has done this this amazing thing for you. Strive to do what pleases Him. The language is literally children of obedience. It's an expression that, that describes not only the quality of how we live and what we do, but it really kind of gets at the idea of of why we live the way we do. It has to do with with our nature. Children of obedience, we've had our nature changed. We're no longer living for self. Or we could say we no longer have to live for self. Paul, you remember, uses the language of slavery. Slavery. He told the believers in Rome, we're no longer slaves to sin. We're slaves to righteousness. We live for the Father's glory because because now, for the first time, it's within our capability to do so. The Spirit of God lives in us and provides the power to live as God's children. Wow. Okay. Here's the next Exhortation. Karen, can we put it on the screen? I want to talk about it for just a bit. We, we read these words, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. All right, I want you to ask someone nearby, what does it mean to be holy in all you do? See what your neighbor thinks. Talk about it for a minute or two. All right, do we have some ideas? Holiness is not a foreign concept to us, right? If, if, we've, if we've been in the church for any time, we, we've heard the word a lot. Holiness. So, what's your neighbor think? What do you think? What does it mean to be holy in all you do? Who wants to start us off? Brave soul. Oh, okay. Doing the things that we do without desire for self, uh, praise, exaltation, monetary gain. <laughs> yeah, they're, yeah how, do you, how do you pull them apart, right? Did, did you all hear that? That sense of being obedient to the will of God, to the Lord Jesus, the commands of Jesus. But then also the, the older concept of being set apart, being separate for God. And, and those two are so, so tightly interwoven, I think. Do you want to finish my sermon for me? 
Okay. <laughs> yeah, that, that really, it, all of that, it, it, it drives at the heart. We, we are different. You know, the, the Greek word for holy literally means to be separate, to be set apart. And, and we often think in terms of holiness as, as, as having to do with, with morality and, and, and personal ethics. And, and that certainly is true. That, that is a piece of it. There's, there's much of that in Scripture, and we'll see even some of that in, in this letter that Peter's written. But, but it is so much more than that. Because Peter's point of reference for holiness is God. Just as he who called you is holy, just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. And then he quotes from Leviticus chapter 11 where where God tells his people, be holy because I am holy. We know that God called Israel to be his chosen people so that they would be a witness to the world of who God is. And we know that the language that Peter is using to this letter uh, where both Gentiles and Jews would be reading, it is filled with images from the Old Testament. Next week, we're going to read descriptions like chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation, people belonging to God, right out of the pages of the Old Testament. Holy means separate, set apart. Now think for, a mean, for, for just a minute with me about the meaning of the word church. It means called out. The church is filled with those who are called out. Does that sound like set apart and separate? Very, very similar concept. Do you see what Peter's driving at? God God has always called his people to be separate from those who are not his people so that attention would be called to God. I can think of times in my life when I decided that I was going to be holy in a particular practice or not a particular practice. I need to be holy. And and in that process of both deciding and announcing, I made it about me. And so... Oftentimes, even our attempts at being a holy people call attention to us. Well, isn't that convenient? Because that's what the sin nature does. I think it's so much more important than that. It is about surrender of self, myself, who I am solely responsible for before God, it is about surrender of my life's desire to make life about me. And everything that I do and everything that I say and everything that I have. When Peter says to be holy in all you do, he means in all we do. I know that's profound. Just you know, let that shape your thinking there for a minute. Be holy in all you do. Everything that we do. Remember where we started this morning. Preparing our minds for action. Being self-controlled. Setting our our sights upon the return of Jesus. So that people see us living for something 
more than just ourselves. That is, I think, a recipe in Peter's mind, steps towards becoming a people who are being holy in all that they do. Starts with how we think. How we think about ourselves. How we think about the stuff of our lives. The relationships of our lives. You know, and then we hear those words, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. Such a neat combination of words there. It's not a fear of God, our Father, in the sense that, <clears throat> that he is going to in, inflict wrath upon us. It is that sense of, of reverence, that totally other presence that Diane referred to, that, oh my gosh, Father, you are just so totally different than anything that I know, and you are calling me as your child to, in the power of your spirit, be totally different in a way that calls attention to you, and others don't see me, but they see you as a result of my desiring to be different for you. That's what Peter's driving at. This is what it means, I think, in the words of of those two authors, to be resident aliens. We live as if our citizenship is somewhere else, because it is. We, We live as if our loyalty belongs to a different government, because it does. We live in such a way that the highest allegiance of our heart is demonstrated in all of our actions. And here I think are some of the most powerful words that Peter says in this this chapter. What's the reason that we do so? Because Peter says, it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Remember, the kingdom of darkness will assault you with doubts and questions, and you will be tempted to minimize the cost and the value and the wonder of your salvation. Peter says, don't do it. Don't live your life as if you were redeemed cheaply. You were redeemed at great cost. Live your lives in such a way that call attention to God because he redeemed you at great cost. Your salvation wasn't cheap. It was expensive. So a scandalous life, living as resident aliens means that that I don't see, we don't see anything in this life as belonging to us. Man, you talk about a challenge to those of us who live in a very blessed and wealthy culture. Really, to, to, to live as resident aliens embraces the truth of Colossians 1, where we are clearly told that everything was made by the Lord Jesus Christ, and it was made for him. To be holy is to live like that's true. To live as if everything belongs to the Lord Jesus because everything does belong to the Lord Jesus. And we want our lives to speak that truth to others. Your very life. It's his. Your family. Your children. 
the futures that you dream about for your children, they all belong to him too. Your friends, they're his. Your job, that's his. Your money, that's his. Your free time, that's his too. I know, I'm meddling. But do you understand, that's how holy people think. They don't categorize or dichotomize their, their lives into to these categories. Well, this is God's and this is mine. This is God's and this is mine. It's all his. And therefore, the person who is striving to be holy as God is holy is, is the man, the woman, the child who, who starts every day with Spirit of the living God, you who indwell me so that I might live out the holiness of your character, I'm going to be tempted at every turn today to make this show about me. It's not. I'm going to be tempted to be the center of people's attention. I'm going to be tempted to think that something belongs to me and it it really doesn't. It's really all about surrender on a daily basis to the Spirit of God who wants to empower us and lead us and challenge us and refine us in our pursuit of being holy in a way that brings glory and honor to God. So praise team, come on up and uh, prepare to lead us and I feel the need to pray. For me and for you, Father, we thank you for the amazing salvation that you have made available to us in Christ. You know better than any of us that we still wrestle on a daily basis with sin's promotion of self. We think too much of ourselves. Sometimes we think too little of ourselves. The problem is we're just thinking about ourselves. Father, we need release from that. And we want to experience uh, victory. Maybe just even in small steps, small ways. Lord, you have, you have called us to live our lives as strangers in this world so that people look at us the way that we think, the way that we make decisions, the things that we do, the things that we don't do, as your spirit has led us in those things, then our desire is that people will see you as being the reason we've made the decisions that we do. We ask that you would lead us both as individuals And together as your people in this place called Applewood Community Church to bring great glory to you because we are striving to be holy as you are. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.